everybody i am ashwin and i am raj and this is blood cancer talks this is a podcast exclusively dedicated to hematologic malignancies where we bring content experts who live and breathe a particular disease and focus on the latest advances in the biology and clinical management today we are very excited to talk about management of all we have an expert dr anjali advani who is a professor of medicine at the cleveland clinic learner college of medicine of case western she is also director of the inpatient leukemia program at toxic cancer institute dr advani thank you so much for joining us before we start can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus sure so um i've been here now at the cleveland clinic for about 20 years um i came here actually straight out of fellowship um where i was at duke um for all my medical training prior to that so um i've really enjoyed being here and um my research focus has really been um looking at novel therapies in both all um and aml um and i'm currently um vice chair um for the swag leukemia committee and also the vice chair for the ash education committee um so it's been an exciting time thank you so much dr dhani so let us uh, jump right in um we will start with a case and you can walk us through how you would approach uh, this patient and we can uh, the discuss the data as we go i hope that is okay with you sounds good okay all right so the case is a 64 year old patient with no significant past medical history presence with fatigue easy bruising and dyspnea on exertion uh, her blood count show a white blood cell count of 25000 hemoglobin of 7.3 and a platelet count of 42 bone marrow aspiration was done to further evaluate this elevated uh, white blood cell count as well as anemia and thrombocytopenia which demonstrated 90% lymphoblasts flow cytometry is positive for cd10 cd19 cd22 cd34 and cd79a as well as hladr and tdt suggestive of diagnostic for uh, pre ball how do you approach you know a case like this which is a new diagnosis of uh, all and can you please walk us through your thought process and what are the diagnostic tests or disease markers you will order sure so um as you mentioned you know really the flow cytometry is critical um that really helps us one verify its all rather than aml and two really help with the phenotype as you mentioned um in terms of distinguishing b versus t all and looking at some of the markers that may be targets for treatment um down the road um so in terms of other testing you know in someone that's 16 over there's a higher incidence of the philadelphia chromosome i know we're going to talk about ph negative all today um but i think one of the critical things in these um especially in the older patients um that really um makes a big difference treatment wise whether they have the philadelphia chromosome and whether they're philadelphia chromosome positive or negative um so typically we'll send um both fish and pcr to evaluate for that routine cytogenetics obviously are sent um those take a little longer to come back 
And then the other thing we do nowadays is send the pH like signature. Um, that can be done a couple of ways. So we were up until fairly recently um, sending that testing to Children's Nationwide um, in Columbus that actually does that testing. But now on a lot of the newer NGS panels, we're able to now identify these fusions. Um, and so now with the more extended fusion panels that we're doing here, um, we're, we're actually able to identify it based on that. And the pH-like signature is present, I'd say in about 20 to 30% of adults with ALL, uh, BALL, and typically has a worse prognosis, although now there are a lot of um, trials that are planned or ongoing trying to really target these patients specifically. Thank you, Dr. Tony, for walking us through your thought process and all the lab tests you order and the reasoning behind that. Do you order a pH-like testing for everyone or do you first wait for the chromosomal changes to show pH positive or pH negative and then decide? Great question. So when we were sending um, the testing to Nationwide, there actually for some reason was an issue if we sent archived samples. Um, it seemed like they, there were just issues with that. Um, now we are um, routinely sending NGS on these patients. And so again, that is kind of helping us pick up, you know, those patients um, by that. So that's kind of become our new standard. Um, we were not doing that up until recently. I think there's a lot of debate. Does the NGS for an ALL patient, how much does it change it? I think probably the main things it helps with are identifying the pH-like signature and also in those patients that have the Philadelphia chromosome, looking at other things like Icarose that may be important from a prognostic standpoint. And in T-cell ALL, I think there's better data um, that Notch and some of these other pathway mutations um, may have a prognostic impact. Although ultimately really um, MRD tends to be used a lot now um, as we assess response to treatment. So the other thing I didn't mention, it is good to get a sample, um, a baseline sample for MRD so that you're able to also track your clone. Um, and I think depending where you are, we still are using a flow-based MRD that's sent to University of Washington for the most part. I think you could argue that um, CloneSeq is also a very reasonable test to send. I think the hard part we've struggled with, it is almost so sensitive that it sometimes becomes harder to know what to do with results. Um, but in the setting of CAR T cells or transplant, um, I think particularly in those areas, or if you're using targeted therapy with Blina or Inno, that may be a better way to measure MRD as well. In addition to being more sensitive, you not as accurately um, quantify some patients with the flow-based technique. Thank you, Dr. Adwani. And we'll talk more about MRD-based testing as well as the use of inotuzumab as well as blinotumumab part of the podcast episode. One thing you mentioned about T-cell ALL, that testing the notch one mutations. There is other uh, specific subtype of T-cell ALL called uh, early T-cell precursor ALL. Can you describe the prognostic significance of ETP ALL, early T precursor ALL? Sure. So ETP ALL, you know, phenotypically is different than regular T cell ALL and often has the myeloid markers. 
And so it's interesting because it seems to kind of have this myeloid phenotype to some degree um, and is very characteristic by flow. Historically, it's been thought it has a worse prognosis. Um, I would say there is a higher rate of resistant disease after induction. Typically, patients have higher rates of MRD. There are some centers that will routinely transplant these patients in first complete remission. I think that although this tends to be, um, in general, a worse prognosis, there is some nice data and um, that was presented by Brent Wood. Again, this was more in pediatrics and young adults as part of the COG AALL0434, um, which was a trial done in T-cell ALL. And that study is very nice. So these um, results, I just talked to Dr. Wood not too long ago, I think are going to be published soon. So it'll be interesting um, to see the final publication. But we're presented at ASH in one of the big plenary sessions and basically showed in their trial, again, this was children and young adults, that the curves for ETP pretty much overlapped TALL, which is unlike what we've seen in most of the other papers that have been published, but this was a very large study. And so one of the questions I think that hopefully this publication will answer is, are we better now at stratifying these patients? So say a patient doesn't achieve CR or has high MRD. I think those are patients that definitely we do need to take to transplant early. They may need intensification or um, modification of their treatment regimen. But say that you have a young patient and they are MRD negative after induction. Maybe you don't need to take those patients to transplant. And so I've still really used MRD to kind of help make those decisions. But I would say if you just look at the data there, there is a higher rate in general of MRD and um, resistant disease. But maybe now that we've gotten a little better at risk stratifying, um, maybe these outcomes won't be as poor. Um, now, at least in young adults, we're also incorporating nilirubine in the upfront treatment. So has that impacted things maybe? So it, it is fair to say that previously we thought ETP-ALL as a poor prognostic marker, but that may not be true if we compare to prognostic markers such as MRD, uh, as well as the newer therapies such as the pediatric inspired protocols, as well as the inclusion of nalarabine in the upfront therapies. Right. So I think their outcome is still like there is a higher risk of resistant disease and there is a higher rate of MRD. But um, in terms of overall and disease-free survival, if you treat people appropriately, it looks like maybe we're able to kind of um, wash that impact out per se with, with, as you mentioned, transplanting people or giving them novel therapies like nilirubine. All right. So for today's discussion, as Dr. Advani had mentioned earlier, we'll focus mostly on pH negative ALL. So, you know, let's say that this patient had the FISH or PCR done and turned out to be pH negative ALL. Uh, before you recommend therapy, um, you know, we need to risk stratify our patients. So can you touch a little bit on why is risk stratification important in ALL and what are the prognostic factors that you typically use in, in this situation to risk stratify the newly diagnosed pH negative ALL patients? Sure. So I think the main really characteristics in terms of risk stratification, um, you know, historically have really been age and cytogenetics, white count at diagnosis. Those really have been the main things I think to date. 
I think a lot of things have started to change in terms of white count and cytogenetics. Not that those aren't important, but really MRD is now starting to become more important. Um, and then obviously the performance status of the patient also impacts kind of how well they'll do um, and how well they're going to tolerate therapy. So talking a little bit more about cytogenetics, what are the, some of the um, poor risk cytogenetics you are worried about in a newly diagnosed pH negative ALL that you start working up for transplant from day one? Sure. So I think the biggest one would be 411 or the MLL fusion. I think that's pretty uh, standard across the board. Um, I think the pH-like signature, although it's considered poor risk, if probably there is not good consensus whether all those patients should be transplanted. Those are patients that I typically think about um, transplanting in CR1, again, if they're appropriate candidates for transplant. And then uh, the other thing is hypodiploidy tends to be very poor risk. Um, other than that, um, you know, historically there were other groups. I think the one other one um, is complex, really defined as five or more abnormalities. So in ALL, that's a little different than AML. If you have three or more, again, it's probably not good risk, um, but I may look at the patient's MRD and kind of not necessarily transplant them. Um, but I would say hypodiploidy, pH-like, and 411 are probably the biggest ones now um, because a lot of the other ones that maybe were listed in the old days, like plus eight and minus seven, I would say now that we use MRD, we probably use that more um, in terms of risk stratification. Now coming towards you know management for this patient who is um, 64, I think let's you know, envision two scenarios, 64-year-old, with a pH negative BALL, how we manage versus, let's say, a 27-year-old with pH negative ALL. How, how will you approach? What are the differences? I know it's a very broad question and sure. there are you know, numerous studies and numerous different protocols, but can you walk you know, your thought process in recommending treatment for these two scenarios? Sure. So, you know, for maybe we'll start with the easier one, which is the 27 year old. So I think, you know, in the these young patients, um, really, there's now fairly good data that pediatric based regimens um, have improved outcomes compared to um, conventional adult regimens. And that's really been both at the national and international, again, retrospective studies comparing outcomes within um, cooperative groups in these young adults treated with pediatric versus adult regimens showing, you know, event-free survivals with pediatric regimens being on the order of 60 to 70% versus only maybe 30 to 40%. Um, now there's always some debate. So, you know, at MD Anderson, you know, they have looked at this and their outcomes in their hands with hyper-CVAD look quite good. But I would again say it probably if you look across the country, at many in academic institutions such as ours, people are using the pediatric based, a pediatric based regimen. So we typically here use um, the C10403 regimen um, that was based on uh, a large 
phase two USNO group trial um, that's now been published in blood. So that's kind of our backbone here. And really the differences from um, the pediatric versus adult regimens are more vincristin, more pegasperogenase, more steroids, and more IT chemo. Um, those are really um, the bigger things. Um, now for the other patient that's 64, that is I think a tougher situation. So right now, for someone that is fit, we would give uh, an adult regimen, and here we use the CLGB19802 that has a BFM backbone. I would say for these older patients, though, the field is moving towards trying to use less intensive chemo plus antibody-based therapies. Again, those, those approaches are not approved yet in this population, um, but there's been some very nice data, particularly from uh, MD Anderson, showing, for example, mini hyper-CVD, which is basically a modified hyper-CVAD plus inotuzumab, which is the anti-CD20 to immunoconjugate, which is right now only FDA approved in relapse disease. Um, but their data looks excellent in terms of response rates and, you know, survival um, with fairly long-term follow-up. And so I think right now what's happening is there are phase three trials planned, basically looking at conventional chemo versus kind of uh, lower intensity chemo plus either Blena or Inno. There's one study being planned within the U.S. intergroup that actually should be opening soon. And then there's another trial being led by Amgen. And so hopefully those trials will be positive and then we'll be able to have an actual standard of care. Um, there have been other trials, including one we did within SWOG, really looking at kind of no chemo. So looking at actually just Blina as induction and post-remission treatment, followed by like a pump maintenance. Remission rates were very high. The durability was not um, very, you know, as long, um, but really in a population of patients that was 75 years of age or older, median age, there was about a 33%, uh, sorry, 37% overall survival at three years, which doesn't sound great, but for, you know, historical chemotherapy, that was probably only about 10 to 12%. Um, but I think we probably need to improve on that and whether just sequencing Inno and Blina as is being done in a trial that's being led by Matt Wiedewald or whether, you know, adding some type of low-dose chemo. There is finally a, a trial that's been done by the Germans, which I really like, um, Matthias Stellis. It's called the Initial One Trial. It was presented at ASH um, the last couple of years and uses inotuzumab as induction and post-remission, sorry, induction, um, and then uses conventional chemo uh, for consolidation. So at that point, patients are not as sick, right? And their results, again, very early follow-up, one to two-year follow-up look excellent. And so um, I think eventually that's kind of where the field is moving, you know, towards probably less chemo and more antibody-based approaches particularly starting in these older patients, but ultimately it may trickle down to younger patients too, if these approaches are good. Yeah, that's, that's exciting. I think one thing um, I really like is the intergroup trial where you know it's randomizing between standard of care versus standard of care plus the monoclonal antibodies. Yeah. I think that's, that's an exciting area because the field of ALL has been plagued with lack of randomized trials all the trials we had was 
phase two data, but there was no randomized study. So each physician or each institution did their own practice. Yeah. I think if we have a randomized data, I think we can probably potentially uniformly adopt that particular treatment protocol. Yeah. yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. And one other question I had was, when do you add Retoximab to the pediatric inspired protocol or the non-Larsen regimen? or even the hyperceval? Good question. So, you know, rituximab really, so we're adding it for patients that are CD20 positive. We do it for both younger and older patients. Although I'll say if you go based on data, um, really we only have data to support it in patients less than 60 years of age. Um, and that's based in the Maury New England Journal of Medicine paper, really that looked at, I think their age may have been even 55 if I remember correctly. Um, and that study basically showed an improvement in disease-free survival with the addition of rituximab. Technically, you should add it during induction, but I think our place and many others, um, because of billing and DRG, um, we have to wait to add it during consolidation or post-remission treatment when they're outpatient. And so that's when we usually um, start the first dose. And then, you know, the Mori paper used 16 doses. Um, I would say here we use eight, and that's, I think, very similar across the rest of the country because there's really no clear, the MD Anderson trials that were done used eight. And um, again, those were not randomized trials, but historical cohort comparisons, and the data seemed quite good there. So I think many places, including here, we use eight total doses. Yeah. Once again, there are like a lot of uh, uh, changes in practices um, across the ocean as well. You know, Europeans do things differently compared to the way we practice here. And um, even though the rituximab trial was completely um, done in Europe and it was not done in the United States, even though it's a randomized study, it's one of the uh, only probably positive randomized study uh, we have in ALL. Uh, it's it's interesting that we modified that particular protocol and right now we are doing only eight doses and like you said uh, elegantly that you know the CR rates as well as overall survivals are equally good. Um, one other question I had like you already kind of briefly touched upon is the key differences between these different protocols. Uh, one important thing is about the different strategies for CNS prophylaxis. When do you administer CNS prophylaxis in all these different protocols? So, you know, CNS prophylaxis now really has shifted towards IT chemo and avoiding um, cranial irradiation as prophylaxis. Um, so the pediatric regimens really incorporate more IT chemo, I'd say, during induction and upfront. CLGB19802 um, does not if you look at the protocol, include that up front, but we typically do in practice um, start CNS prophylaxis during induction as well. Um, Cause the thought is, you know, if there is CNS disease, you probably want to treat it early. And two, honestly, from a practical standpoint for the patient, it's kind of nice to get a dose or two in while they're inpatient. Um, so even though that's not really written into the regimen, that's what we typically do um, for the CLGB19802. Are you worried about like some, some physicians have seen in practice where they are concerned that if the patient has blast in the peripheral blood to do 
chemotherapy because you know the worry is the introduction of lymphoblasts into the CSF. Are you concerned about that, or is you know, it just a, a theoretical risk? So typically, you know, if a patient is not on a protocol, we often will wait to give it. But I have to say the pediatricians have done this forever, right? And mostly in their case, it was a practical um, issue where the kids, because they were put under anesthesia, right, to do the bone marrow, they did the LP at the same time. Um, and so many of the protocols actually, and so there's never really been um, data suggesting that there's increased risk and or harm. I think the one thing that can be difficult is interpreting the CSF results. So you sometimes have to use that Steinhurst-Blair formula that looks at um, blast counts in both the blood and the CSF and uses this ratio um, to kind of sort things out. Um, but, you know, off protocol, and so say I had a, this 64-year-old lady and her white count, as you mentioned, was high with a high circulating blast count. Just to make things easier, again, um, I don't know that we would harm her, but just more to make things easier in terms of interpretation, I will usually wait till they're blast clear in that situation. Yeah, sounds good. So I was going to talk about pegasparaginase next, but before that, I just wanted to, just for our audience, um, I remember when looking at the ALL treatment regimens, they are very confusing. There's induction, there is consolidation, and uh, then maintenance. So uh, can you just briefly touch upon, not going into the nitty gritties of it, but the, sure. but the broad phases of the treatment and, and roughly the duration of each phase in Absolutely. the different regimens? Sure. So I would say, you know, in general, um, for intensive therapy, you know, the induction, um, that's usually people are in the hospital, that's usually um, about 28 to 38, sorry, 28 to 30 days. Um, and uh, then at that point, the patients, once their neutrophils recover, they're discharged to get a bone marrow to confirm remission. Assuming they're in remission, that's where you start consolidation or post-remission treatment. And most of those courses go for a period of approximately five months. Um, so I'd say typically that intensive part of treatment, induction and post-remission treatments about six months. And then the maintenance can kind of vary. So I'd say in the young adult protocols, that tends to be um, on the order of about two years. So it used to be three years for males and two years for females, um, but now, um, both um, the adult groups and children's oncology group, there's really been no clear data that you need to do it differently for males versus females. So I'd say most places are now starting to standardize that to two years for the young adults. For the older adults, you know, some of the regimens like um, CLGB19802 will use like basically 18 months, others use 24 months. Um, and during that period, people really are getting um, just vincristin once a month. Um, they're getting um, oral 6-MP and methotrexate. They're getting pulses of steroids. And then the one other thing that probably is different between the adult versus pediatric or young adult regimens is the young adult regimens do continue to get IT chemo or CNS prophylaxis, including during maintenance um, versus the adult protocols typically don't. And, and when you were saying that MRD uses the risk stratification, you typically mean MRD at the end of induction, correct? Around day oh, 28 great to day question. 30. So that, you know, that's a great question. So it, that is one part of it. Um, so I'd say if you're negative after induction, that's really good, right? Um, but if you are detectable, but it's low level, 
Um, so then you do need to look really at other time points. And so um, typically if, if they're negative after that, um, I will still monitor it again, but when I monitor it may vary a little bit. But if they're positive, I'll probably get another value in about three months to see where they are. Um, and make that decision. Um, and that'll help in terms of decisions about blenitumumab and also um, about allogeneic transplant. All right, so now uh, let's touch on asparaginase. As you know, I mean, this is a drug that we, I remember in fellowship, like seeing some of the toxicities of it, it always sticks to your mind. As you mentioned, in terms of asparaginase toxicities, you know, the main things we worry about are liver abnormalities, coagulopathy, so both clots and bleeding, as well as pancreatitis. All right. And, and at which time point in the treatment, you know, as you had mentioned, uh, do you administer um, asparaginase or pegasparaginase? Yeah, so that really depends somewhat on the regimens. Um, so I think many of them incorporate um, it during day five or so. Um, I think there's a lot of thought whether that maybe is not the best place. So there have been some nice studies done by the NAPFO group um, in Europe, um, really looking at later timing of that. And I suspect there is probably less toxicity because one of the problems, especially during induction, you run into problems where people may get septic, they're getting other drugs, um, and all of that can lead to more issues in terms of toxicities with liver function, coagulopathy, and all of that. So I think that as we kind of move forward, my guess is that timing may change. I think the other thing that is not clear is do we need to be using as much as we are or should we really be adjusting the drug more based on levels? And again, there's not um, been good prospective trials looking at that, but um, again, some of the European and other places um, like Wendy Stock have you know, started to kind of look at this. Um, it's just hard to routinely make some a good statement about this, you know, that we have that's very evidence-based. Um, so I think that's, I, I think those are places that are going to change. I think, you know, um, again, I, I, I actually, I was just on service at the um, end of July, and we had a patient that was um, in her early 50s, no real comorbidities, but um, was obese, and had, um, so she, her BMI was high and she had a history of uh, uh, hepatic steatitosis, so NASH. Um, and so we actually dose reduced her PEG um, for induction because I was really worried just given what I've seen anecdotally and, and just in, even if you look at the literature that if we gave her that full dose, you know, that we were going to end up in trouble and then, then it makes it very difficult, right? Because you have to recover liver function and everything to go on to consolidation. And, and so, you know, now the hard part is, you know, she's done well. And so will you make up that dose? Will you give a higher dose next time? Right. I don't know that we know the answers to those questions. Uh, one other you know, question I had was in terms of asparaginases, we see different formulations. Like if you look at the protocols, you know, they talk about L asparaginase. I know that we're not using that anymore. Uh, we are using pegasparaginase. Are there any other formulations apart from L-asparaginase and pegasparaginase? Yeah, so there is a trial ongoing with something called calaspergase. 
you know, one of the newer formulations. Um, I'm not probably very eloquent to talk about the exact mechanism and how that works differently, but um, so yeah, there are. And, you know, I think one of the things I, you know, just like when I think back, I, we don't have L-asparaginase to use now, but I have to say one thing, it was, it was more difficult for patients because they had to come in more often, but I have to say one of the other things that was really nice about it is it was shorter acting, right? So for, from a toxicity standpoint, that's kind of beautiful, right? Because you, you, you aren't ending up stuck. Um, the other thing, as you know, is for patients, you know, there are a proportion of patients that with pegasparaginase because of the E. coli um, formulation can develop, or it's hard to know if it's that or actually the PEG develop um, hypersensitivity reactions and cannot be rechallenged um, if it's a severe anaphylactic reaction or other things. And so in those cases, there is the Erwinia spirogenes um, that we can also use in that setting. One other point I heard, I don't know how far this is true. Maybe you can comment about it. That cal asparaginase, which you were mentioning earlier, that's being studied right now, has a half-life of like 44 days. Um, I think, yeah, longer. I think it would be very hard to mitigate the toxicity sometimes we see with, with asparaginase in general. Yeah, and I, I, I'll be honest, I can't comment on what the half-life is in comparison, like direct number, but I believe it is longer. And so... Yeah, 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 it's tricky. We have Very to see. Tricky. We have to see the uh, the data. Um, one other question is: Do you routinely use thromboprophylaxis when you are giving pegasparaginase? That's a great question. So I think it would be great if we could. And actually, one of our pharmacists um, that just started with us was asking this exact question. So I think the problem, because um, these patients are definitely at risk for clots, but the problem is they're also at risk for bleeding. And so most right. of them, my experience has been their fibrinogen goes low. And most of them, their platelets are all single digits. And so unfortunately, we're kind of stuck, you know, because of that. Um, right. Now, some places in Europe will use HE3 replacement. We don't do that so much in this country. I don't know that it's even really feasible, but, um, you know, I think if you had um, a patient that say was a lymphoblastic lymphoma with adequate platelet counts that was not coagulopathic, that would probably be something you'd want to think about. But again, I think most of them get pretty coagulopathic. So that becomes then a risk benefit in terms of bleeding as well. Um, one uh, more of a practical question I had with asparaginase, and this is something, you know, I, one of my patients asked me, and I didn't know the answer to that. Uh, probably maybe you can explain it to me. Um, they asked me, given that um, they're getting asparaginase, should they eat diet which is less than asparagine? Do you, do you actually recommend any specific diet for these patients or... Yeah. You know, there's no way to avoid asparagine in their diet. Right. Yeah, I, I don't. That's a great question. I, I, I but I would suspect there. Yeah, I, I don't know that anyone's ever looked at that. But I think the amount, you know, it's so highly expressed in ALL cells versus the rest. I'm guessing it would be a very small amount and probably wouldn't be clinically significant. Okay. Yeah, that would be my that, that would be my best guess. Yeah, I think that that makes sense, too. Yeah.
Um, now talking about MRD, um, I know you already um, briefly touched upon that and you would check MRD um, based on flow and you would do it after induction. Is that the right time point to check so, for MRD? So I think you have to definitely look at other time points as well. Um, you know, and definitely the more time points you have, the better kind of prognostic assessment you have. I have to say, typically if people are negative after induction, um, you know, my experience has been then they're negative when you check them again in three or six months. So I don't routinely um, necessarily keep checking those people as frequent. I kind of use kind of the risk assessment of their cytogenetics and white count and everything else to kind of end my suspicion. Um, and, you know, whether I'm on the fence about transplant or not to kind of help guide how many time points I do. Um, but typically I like to at least do end of induction and end of consolidation. Um, but again, if they're positive at the end of induction, then I'll usually do one again in, you know, two to three months. And part of that decision will depend on, you know, am I trying to get Blina approved um, and kind of, you know, what I'm thinking about transplant and all of that. Got it. Got it. I think this is a nice segue to talk about uh map data. Um, I think this was a phase two single arm study where they treated patients with MRD positive disease with map, um, which was published in Blood in 2018. Can you can you describe the data a little bit more about um, how uh, how we need to treat these patients who have MRD positive disease and when is when is in the in the study which time point did they check the MRD? Yeah, so great question. So really, um, you know, we know that when these patients have a persistent MRD positive, their prognosis is poor. And so this trial that was led by Nicola Gukbudget um, is also known as the BLAST trial. There was about an 80% rate of um, molecular response. Their trial, if I remember correctly, used PCR, I believe, um, rather than flow. Um, and technically, these patients would not be candidates right after induction. That would be kind of too soon. Although I will say... So PCR for checking for what? What do we I believe, I believe they used PCR for their MRD rather than flow. Okay. Um, but what what mutation we are checking for PCR? Ah, uh, so the PCR would be really looking at immunoglobulin gene rearrangement. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Got it. So in Europe, most centers actually, and that may be changing now, often use PCR rather than flow. Um, this was kind of before adaptive, so I don't know where things have changed, but in general, that most of the European studies published, and I'd have to go back to look at Nicola's paper, but I believe it was PCR in this study. Um, but technically, with the way it was approved and the way this study looked at it, it wouldn't be right after induction. Um, Although I will tell you, there are cases where a patient, if they have very high levels of MRD after induction, so if it's low level, I typically would just continue on chemo. Um, 
because again, it's not really FDA approved in that area. I would say that if it's, you know, I had a patient where their percent was like 20 or something percent, it was pretty high. Um, it was actually surprising. They didn't actually have morphologic disease. And I think maybe when someone went back and looked, it actually looked like that. That was a situation where, although it didn't meet quite textbook criteria, you know, their outcomes are not good. And so we actually gave Blina and then uh, tried to, they became negative and got them to transplant. So um, the way you would utilize this, if the patient has MRD positive disease, either after induction or consolidation, you would prefer to use plenitimumab to- So not after, um, not after induction. Okay. Yeah, you would use after consolidation. So usually I would use it at that, um, probably that three month time point. Okay. Yeah. That three month time point, if they're still, unless again, after induction, they're very high. So say they were positive, but they're like 0.2 or 0.3, something like that. I would continue with chemo at that, in that setting. And with, after blender treatment, how many cycles of blender do you give in your practice to- Good question. So part of that depends on, you know, most of these patients, I would say, you know, there are, if you look at that trial, um, and then they did a long-term follow-up, there are a percentage of patients that did well without transplant. But I don't know that we know how to figure out which of those, which of those patients they are, right? How, how, we need, we need to figure that out, but we don't know that right now. And so I would say, you know, the standard of care is still for at least a young patient that's, uh, or not even young, but anyone that's fit for transplant, um, that's, that becomes MRD negative to then take them to transplant. So going back to your question, um, you know, usually within a cycle, I'd say they become MRD negative depending on if transplant's ready to go, then I would take them to transplant and only do the one cycle, but say they're not ready with the donor or whatever, then I would do another cycle while we're trying to get ready for transplant. Other question I had was, what are the, some of the toxicities of blenantiumumab? So the main side effects really are, you know, can be fevers, chills, uh, myelosuppression. Um, there is a risk of both cytokine release syndrome as well as neurotoxicity. Um, those risks seem to correlate with higher disease tumor burden. And so um, I think most centers in most places will reduce those patients prior to starting Blina. So in um, Max Tope's paper um, and many of the protocols, they do recommend like a decadron prephase um, you know, in patients that are considered to be higher tumor burden, some places, again, depending on the disease burden, we'll also think about using um, cytoxin in some situations as well. Got it, got it. I think this is something we should have uh, talked it before we mentioned blinatumumab. But for some of our listeners, can you explain how blinatumumab actually works? Sure. So blinatumumab is a bispecific T-cell engaging antibody. So I really think about the drug as kind of a bridge. So one arm is anti-CD3 that engages the T-cell, and the other arm is an anti-CD19 that engages the B-lymphoblast. And basically this drug um, leads to lysis of the B lymphoblast and then activation and proliferation of those cytotoxic T cells. One of my, uh, my colleague actually explained to me it's a matchmaker between T cells and uh, ALL uh, cells uh, because like it breaks. That. 
the patience yeah. as well yeah no i agree yeah, i agree that's good nice but uh, i wanted to touch base briefly on um, allo transplant in newly diagnosed ph negative all i remember asking you this question during rounds one time in the inpatient setting also <laughs> and you had explained it really eloquently so um as you know i mean with this pediatric inspired regimens the outcomes have improved so what is currently the role of allogeneic transplant in the upfront setting in ph negative all when do you refer patients for allogeneic transplant in this setting yeah great question um so i think in young adults now our cure rate is very high i mean or you know um and so i'd say you know 60 to 70% of patients right do really really well um so i think in general so i would say definitely if they have 411 um typically patients with ph like signature i would think about it um the hypodiploidy um, the complex chromosome that's a little bit more complicated, but again, if they have five or more abnormalities, that sure makes you think about it. And then really the rest, I really use MRD a lot now. Um, you know, the white count, it's funny. I, I don't think we use as much now that we have these other things, because I think the MRD really helps us a lot more in these situations now. So if somebody is, let's say, MRD positive after three months of consolidation and you gave them Blina and now they are negative, would you still take them to transplant? If I would. Okay. I would. Yep, I would. And so, you know, I think if they're, and again, this probably differs a little in peds versus adults and peds, they, if they're negative at the end of consolidation, they will not transplant them. I think in it, uh, you know, in our young adults and adults, if they're positive at three months, I kind of worry about those people. Um, you know, again, looking at the flow MRD, um, those are people I kind of worry about. And again, I don't know that we know the answer, but, you know, if you look at most of the curves, those people, their curve is not going to be as good. So I think one of the question I had, uh, Dr. Adwani, is you know, all these ALL regimens are you know, so long and some of the therapies take like for two years or longer. Um, and this is a huge you know, psychosocial burden on all our patients. You know, what are the, some of the strategies you practice at your center as well as you know, some of the academic centers employed to address this huge burden? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I think once these patients go to maintenance, it becomes much easier. So I think really trying to make sure you support and encourage the patients, you know, going back to school and work, um, most of them are able to. I think you have to be more flexible with your appointments and sometimes see people outside of clinic time just to be able to let them be able to go back to that normalcy. Cause like you said, that's a big burden. You know, I think the hope is as we get some of these novel treatments um, that will hopefully um, decrease the time of treatment and also maybe make it easier, right? So that the six month period, I would say is what's really hard on patients. Cause you know, if they were in college or working or whatever, they have young kids that during that time they're stuck. They're kind of stuck having to come back and forth and do the treatment. Um, but hopefully as we get these newer regimens, I'm hoping, and you know, CAR T cells, which I know that's whole, a whole topic in it. So, you know, that is an area that, you know, the question is, could you, you know, in the future, the children's oncology group is actually looking at moving CAR T cells up front for these MRD positive patients, you know, um, 
into more of the upfront setting. And so the question is, if you start incorporating treatments like that upfront, are you going to need all this other treatment? Right? Right, right. Yeah, that's a very important question. Yeah. 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 Thanks a lot, Dr. Adwani, for your time. And this was awesome. I'm sure we both learned a lot and we look forward to having you again on our podcast in the future to discuss about relapsed refractory, pH negative ALL, as well as pH positive ALL, and also uh, TAL. Thank you, guys.